together. Father, we pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. And Lord, we ask that you would cause us to behold your glory in the face of Christ and be transformed from one degree of glory to another into his image. We pray that you would give us a wide and deep understanding of your word, of what you were doing in the covenant people of Israel, and of what you're doing in the church today. Lord, make us people who, who know you, people who commune with you, people whose hearts and minds are illumined by your spirit to understand the scriptures. And thereby, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom for our time. Make us strong and stable and ready to live for you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 34. And we will be looking at the end of Exodus 34. As you know, last week we, I was hoping to do the whole chapter. We did not finish and so we'll be looking just at the, the final portion of Exodus 34 today. And really what we're seeing here is two narrative storylines come together. We're, we're seeing a narrative storyline that has to do with the people of God, and particularly, at this point, the nation of Israel. And then we're seeing, a, that's a national storyline, and then we're seeing a personal storyline that, that is that of the man Moses. And, and these two storylines are going to come together today. And um, as you know, I uh, often notice chiastic structures in the text, and I, and I did not find a chiastic structure in the text, so I decided I would give my sermon a chiastic structure today. And so um, we are going to begin and end with something that all stories have, and that is a setting. So we'll start and we'll start with thoughts of Israel's setting at this point in the narrative, where, where they've been, where they are. And then we'll end with thoughts about our setting as Christians in the church today. And then our second and second to last sections will have to do with, with opportunity, Israel's opportunity and our opportunity. And, and really the heart of that is the way that both Old Covenant Israel and the church today have the opportunity to experience and live in the goal of salvation, what God was after in saving his people. And then our third and third to last sections will deal with the major problem that Israel faced. Israel had a big problem that is ongoing in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And, and then the corresponding uh, section on our side, as we consider how we as Christians respond to a text like this, we'll see the solution to the problem that is given to us in the New Covenant. And at the center of this whole um, uh, thing, we'll, we'll look at the way that Moses is already enjoying the goal of salvation and, and the way that his face radiates with communion with God. So let's, let's think together uh, to begin with at the, the setting that the nation of Israel finds itself in and you, you saw in the reading in Exodus 34, 28, that Moses 
was there on Mount Sinai with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. So we've read other statements to this effect as we've moved through the book of Exodus. Uh, Back in Exodus chapter 24, at the end of that chapter, in verse 18, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And on that occasion, in 24.12, the Lord had said, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment. And you know how this goes. Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets the tablets written with the finger of God, inscribed with the Ten Commandments, and then he comes down off the mountain, and he finds the people worshiping the calf. And in chapter 32, uh, when, he, when he comes down, um, he, he, in, in verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And now he's gone back up the mountain, and the people are still at the foot of the mountain. And for another 40 days and 40 nights, he's going to be there with the Lord, communing with God, God is going to be re-inscribing, and we looked last week at how the the middle section of Exodus 34 really just restates what we had in Exodus 23. And so Israel is in the wilderness. This is their setting. They're at Mount Sinai. They've been banished from the Garden of Eden. And and the, the import of that is when Adam transgressed, he defiled himself. He brought death into the world, and death and sin cannot remain in the presence of God. So God banished Adam from the garden, and now the Lord is at work in making it so that the people of Israel can dwell with him. That's the goal of salvation. The goal of salvation is for God to liberate them from being enslaved in Egypt and then bring them to the land of promise where they will live in covenant with God. The point is not just to get saved. The point is to be delivered from slavery so that you can live with God in covenant. They're on the way to the promised land. They're in the wilderness. And what we're, what we're seeing here in this setting, no longer in Eden, exiled from Eden, no longer in Egypt, not yet in the land of promise, what we're seeing is the opportunity that they have here at Mount Sinai. It's an opportunity to enter into covenant with God. And as we'll see in this text... They, they have a, 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 an obstacle, and, and we talked about this last week uh, when we considered the way that the covenant that was initially made when Moses first went up on the mountain is really the same covenant that he's going to make after this covenant has been broken, right? He goes up on the mountain, they, they enter into covenant, they agree to the terms, he comes down the mountain, they've, they've already broken the covenant, he takes the two tablets, he smashes them, the covenant is broken, and now they're going to re-enter or remake, reinstitute the same covenant. And, and this is the problem that Israel faces. Uh, before before we, we, we say more about that problem, though, let me, let me say a, a kind of um, word of application about both the setting and the opportunity. First about the setting, we all need to recognize that, that none of us live in the Garden of Eden. And, and in our lives, we all need to embrace realistic expectations. Yes, God is powerful to transform. Yes, God is, is powerful to raise the dead. Yes, God can renew our hearts and change our desires. 
And yes, we're still going to live outside the Garden of Eden. And, and the reason I'm saying this is because there are people in our culture, there are people in our church, and, and sometimes people online. You, you listen to these people talk, and they talk as though the kingdom is going to come now. And they talk as though we're no longer going to struggle with sin now. And they talk as though all these problems can be resolved, or, or they might get to a place where they've arrived, and everything is as they've always wanted it. And, and this is where I, I want to say we live outside the Garden of Eden. And we are not going to re-enter a, a land like that until Christ comes and institutes a new heaven and new earth. Until then, we are going to live in a fallen world, and we need to embrace realistic expectations about the world in which we live. We need to have, we need to have sound theology that enables us to know where we are. And now, uh, in response to Israel's opportunity, a word of application about that. Uh, they have the opportunity, as I've said, to live in covenant with God, even though they're not yet in the land. They're on the way to the land of promise, but they already have the opportunity to experience the goal of salvation. And again, the goal was not just to be liberated from, from Egypt. The goal was to serve the Lord. The goal was to live in covenant with him, to commune with him. And in response to that, I just want to observe that God has made us such that only God is enough for us. Only God is enough for us. And I'm confident that some of you need to hear this question. Is God enough for you? Is God enough for you? Are you content with, with the God of the universe? I mean, this is absurd, isn't it? But this is, where, this is who we are. This is how we respond to life. Are you content with the almighty God to give himself to you? Is that enough for you? Or are you demanding, yes, you've given me yourself, but I'd like, I'd like to have an income that looks like this, or I'd like to have a particular spouse, or I'd like to achieve this goal that I have, or I'd like to be a champion in this way, or I'd like this, or I'd like that, or is God enough for you? Okay, now the major problem. And, and um, here I'd like to draw your attention to what, what takes place here in Exodus 34. Look at Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain... Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So Moses has been in the direct presence of God, and his face has become radiant. And you know, last week we, we talked about Exodus 34, 5, where uh, the psalmist David writes, those who look to him are radiant. And today our call to worship was from number 6, 24 through 26, where the 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 priests are instructed to put the name of God upon the people and they are to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. So really the blessing is, the blessing that Israel's priests were to communicate over, pronounce over the people of God was something like, may you experience what Moses experienced. May the, the shining face of God that Moses experienced 
on the mountain, Mount Sinai, may that be your experience as you walk with God. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And you can hear the words of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and, about, and so forth. Uh, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to, to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This sense of shalom that results from God being enough for you. That's the opportunity that Israel has. What's the problem? Look at what happens. Uh, before we read on, let me just ask you, if, if you were an Israelite at the foot of the mountain, and let's just assume, as I hope is the case, that you have a circumcised heart. Okay, You're, you've been born again. You have a new heart. You, you love God. You love God's word. And Moses comes down the mountain, and his face is radiant. How are you going to respond? I know what I'm going to do. I'm trying to get as close to Moses as I can. And I'm trying to get every second I can with Moses for him to explain the instructions. And if he stops talking long enough, I'm going to be asking questions. Moses, what was it like in God's direct presence? What exactly did you experience there? What did he say? How, how exactly? You hear what I'm saying? I, I think that people who are born again... If Moses comes down the, down the mountain and his face is shining, they are going to want to be drawn to Moses. Look at verse 30. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Now, this is, I think, reflecting what's wrong with the Old Covenant. And what's wrong with the Old Covenant, the two verses that we that I drew attention to last week, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, that really capture this. Deuteronomy 29.4, Moses says to the people, To this day the Lord, ha the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So the problem is they don't have a circumcised heart. Mo most the, the, the people at large, they don't have a circumcised heart. Surely there's a believing remnant among them. Uh, Joshua has been, you know, with Moses in the tent of meeting. And when Moses leaves the tent of meeting, Joshua stays right there. But, but at, by and large, the majority of the people, they see the glory of God. And they're not drawn to it. They are repelled by it. They are a, they're not warmed and comforted. And, and they don't respond wanting to worship the Lord. They are afraid and, and Paul articulates in, in Galatians 3.19 the problem when he says the words, If a law had been given that could give life. So the Lord has not given them the new heart. And the, the law with its commandments and ordinances was not a life-giving word. So th that's the problem with the old covenant. You've got a, a majority of the people who have not been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. They have not been, they've not had their hearts circumcised. And as a result, the glory of God does not come to provoke them to worship. The glory of God comes and it exposes that they're afraid of God. And, and they are repelled by God. And so they flee in fear. So in a way, the shining face of Moses condemns the people on this occasion. 
Verse 31, but Moses called to, to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that Yahweh had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So the, the big problem here is that they've already broken the Sinai covenant with the golden calf. And now the, the covenant is being reforged or remade, but it's the same covenant. And, and this indicates that exactly what we're going to read through, through the books of, of, of Leviticus, where, where Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron the priest, are going to draw near and offer unauthorized fire and be struck dead. And, and in the book of Numbers, when they get out into the wilderness, and again and again the people complain, and again and again you read of, of things like Korah's rebellion, and, and again and again the people, they fail over and over. And then you continue through the rest of the Old Testament, and it's just a history of disobedience until finally the people are exiled from the land. The fact that they flee from Moses is like a portent of all that disaster. The fact that they are repelled by rather than drawn to the visible glory of God in the face of Moses is just a, a, like a preview of the rest of the Old Testament. And, and, and the fact that Moses veils his face, it's as though he's saying, you can't take the glory of God. You don't want the glory of God. And, and so he's, he's covering it up. So this is the big problem that Israel has. The covenant has been broken. They're still at Sinai. And, and they really, they are, they're not drawn to God. They don't, they don't have new hearts. Verse 34 tells us, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, this brings us to this sort of central uh, section of my, uh, my uh, sermon structure. And, it, and it, it, it brings us to the point where the personal narrative of Moses intersects with the national narrative of, of Israel. Because what's happening here is Moses is experiencing the goal of the covenant. Moses is experiencing the goal of redemption. Moses is experiencing exactly what the priests are going to communicate for the people when they do the prayer wish blessing. May, may the Lord make his face to shine upon... Moses is getting it. Moses is communing with God. In response to this, I, I, I want to ask, and this is coming out of Deuteronomy 29.4, Galatians 3.21, do you have a new heart? Do you have the heart necessary to, to, to produce the kind of fruits described in the scriptures, the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Do, do these things naturally grow on the tree of your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith and faithfulness. And self-control. Do these things naturally flow out of the heart that you have? You can, you can track through the Old Testament how the Lord starts making this promise. Like Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. 
The Lord himself will circumcise your heart. Jeremiah 31, the Lord promises through the prophet Jeremiah, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts so that it's not on tablets of stone, it's written on you. So it's not something external that's condemning you, it's something within you that's making you want to love God and love people. And then Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel basically says the same thing another way. He says, I'm going to take out the heart of stone and I'm going to put in the heart of flesh. And then in the New Testament, you know, we read, we read the Lord Jesus speak to Nicodemus of, of this new birth that he needs to experience, being born again. And, and Paul, when he writes to Titus, he speaks of how he saved us, the Lord saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration. This, this being made alive and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure I have this new heart. Paul says to people, I think feeling that very way in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The fact that you're concerned that you don't have a new heart is a really good sign. And the way to respond to that concern is simply to call on the name of the Lord, to cry out to the Lord for him to make you new. And he will do it. The Lord Jesus is not going to close the door in the face of anybody that wants to come to him. Anybody that wants to come to the Lord Jesus, whosoever will, he says, may come. So you should definitely come to Jesus. You should definitely cry out for a new heart. And if, if that happens for you, the problem will be resolved. The problem Israel had will be resolved. And you'll begin to experience what Moses experienced. So let's just think together for a moment of what Moses is enjoying there on Mount Sinai and, 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 and how he's responding. And here I would, I would draw your minds back to Exodus 33. You remember Moses goes back up on the mountain after finding the golden calf. And, and the Lord says, Moses, I'm not going with the people. You take them on up into the land of promise. I'm not coming with you. And you remember how Moses responded. He said in Exodus 33, verse 15, he says, um, sorry, that's Exodus 35. That's why I can't find it. Exodus 33, um, 15, he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. So the first thing I want to highlight here is Moses' experience of the presence of God. And, and to experience the presence of God is to experience fullness of life. It's to be in the holy place. So to, to enter into the presence, you can't come into the presence of God with your sin. You've got to be repentant of your sin. Your sins have got to be dealt with through the blood of Christ. And then you can enjoy God's presence. And then you remember how after the Lord consented to go with the people, Moses says in 33:18, please show me your glory. So Moses wants to experience the glory. Moses is not saying to God, Lord, if you start lighting things up, I'm going to flee out of fear. Moses is saying, no, what I want is more of you. And then the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you and will proclaim my name before you. And then he does it. And Moses' response in Exodus 30, 34 uh, verse 8, is to quickly bow his head toward the earth and worship. 
So what is Moses enjoying? He's enjoying God's presence, God's glory, God's revelation of himself, and he's enjoying the, the, the act of praising and thanking God, worshiping God in response to God's revelation of himself. And, and I would just offer you this moment to reflect on the question, are you communing with God? Are you, are, you, are you setting up your life so that when you gather here on a Sunday morning, you come in anticipation of communing with God, with the people of God? As you sing the praises, as you eat the bread and drink the cup, or, or are you doing things that are going to make it harder for you to come and be focused on the Lord and, and be ready to enjoy his presence? We want to be pursuing communion with God and, and setting up our lives so that we're well-rested, so that we're able to concentrate, so that we're prepared for worship, so that we're prepared to commune with God's people. And, and then we also want to be cultivating communion with God on a daily basis. And, and I would just urge you to, to, to set aside time in your life. It, it doesn't really matter where it happens, but... Most of us, many of us, are best, we're at our best in the morning. Maybe not right after you wake up, but early in the day, you set aside some time to read the scriptures and to call on the name of the Lord in prayer. If, if we love God, we will want to commune with God. And if you cultivate these personal spiritual disciplines of time in the word and time in prayer, you will find your enjoyment of God, your desire for God, and your ability to live for God increasing. And I would, I would urge you to pursue this kind of life of communing with God. By communing with God... Moses is already enjoying the experience of the goal of salvation, and his face is radiant. Now, we, we've seen Israel's problem. Now we're going to consider uh, the solution. And as we move past Moses, uh, I, I want to turn our thoughts into how does this narrative speak to us as Christians? And so I would invite you to look with me over at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul begins to comment on not only this particular narrative in Exodus 34, but also he, he's commenting more generally on the function of the Old Covenant and the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So if you, if you look at, at 2 Corinthians 3, I just want to draw your attention to verse 3, where Paul writes to the Corinthians, and, and it's, it's just astonishing to think that Paul is having to appeal to the Corinthians to stay with him. I mean, the Apostle Paul. Can you, can you imagine getting a letter from the Apostle Paul? And these Corinthians, they're, they're kind of on the fence on whether or not they're going to follow Paul or some of these, these charlatans that have come in to try to talk Paul down. And Paul says to them in, in 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What he's saying is, you're showing the evidence of Jeremiah 31 in your faith in Christ. He's saying to them that the law for you is not on those stone tablets. The law has been written by the spirit of God on your hearts. And then he continues. Uh, he, he says, 
down in verse 5, he speaks of how our sufficiency is from God at the end of verse 4, and then he speaks of how God has made us sufficient to be ministers of, new, of a new covenant. You know, it's interesting, the, um, the terminology that Paul uses here is the same terminology in Exodus 3 when, when the Lord basically tells Moses, I will be with your mouth and will make you sufficient. In, in the Greek translation, uh, this is the way the Lord speaks to Moses. And it's as though Paul is saying, what Moses experienced is what we, the apostles, are experiencing and what you Christians have the opportunity to experience. God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, the old covenant, but the Spirit gives life. Now, this is amazing, what Paul does in verse 7, because when he speaks of the ministry of death, he's talking about the old covenant. It's a good and gracious law that, that God gives to Israel through Moses, but it's a killing law. It's a condemning law. It's holy, righteous, and good, but it's not a law that has the power to give life. And so Paul says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end? I think he's saying two things in, in these statements. He's saying, remember how Moses' face was radiant with, with the presence of the glory of God. That radiance was being brought to an end. But the, the fading radiance of Moses' face also points to the temporary, uh, the temporary period in which the Old Covenant is going to be operative. So it's not only Moses' radiant face that's being diminished. It's, the, it's the, the, effect, the effectual period of the Old Covenant that has an end point on it. So if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit, and he's talking about the new covenant in which Christians experience our relationship with God, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And, and you might be tempted to think, well, we don't have somebody like Moses with a shining face, but let's keep reading. Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, the old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. I was talking with someone yesterday about this passage, and he pointed out to me that John Calvin uses uh, the metaphor or, the, or the, uh, an analogy of the sun and the moon. That the Old Covenant is like the moon that at night might seem very bright, but at, during the daytime, the moon is up there, but you can't even see it. The, the glory of the moon has come to have no glory at all because of the brightness of the sun. And that's the way the New Covenant, the ministry of righteousness, exceeds the old in glory. Verse 10, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So he's, he's contrasting what he himself as an apostle and the other apostles do in their ministry 
They don't veil their faces. And then he, he goes on, verse 14, their minds, the minds of the old covenant Israelites, were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. And it's, it's very interesting here the way that Paul words this because he's worded it in such a way that it, it, it speaks not only to the removal of the veil, but also to the, the, the nullifying of the glory of the Old Testament or the, or the Old Covenant, the, the, the doing away, the bringing to an end of the Old Covenant. So the Old Covenant is in place until Christ comes, at which point the veil is removed and the glory of the Old Covenant is exceeded by the sun that rises in the day. And then Paul returns to speak of uh, the people of Israel in verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. In verse 16, he speaks uh, of, of what happens to people when they're converted, but he uses the language of Exodus 34, 34. So it's like Paul picks up that line, Exodus 34, 34, to describe Moses going back in before the Lord and taking the veil away. And he essentially says... This is what happens when somebody gets converted, when someone gets born again. It's like they're Moses experiencing the direct presence of God. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It, Paul is saying, if you have been born again, you are like Moses beholding the glory of God. Look, drop your eyes down to chapter 4, uh, verse 4. The God of this age, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then look at verse 6. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you have come to know Christ, that's what's happened to you. You see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 3, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And then Paul, it's like he says, I know this is over your heads. I mean, it's like Paul's, it, I, Paul knows very well what he's about to say. And I suspect he knows that there are going to be very few in the church in Corinth that are going to track with him and be able to, to work out immediately on first hearing the implications of what he's about to say and it's, it's like he says I'm just going to blow their minds theologically this is amazing verse 17 he says now the Lord is the spirit what's he doing remember earlier in the passage he had spoken in verse 3 of how uh, the, the, the word was written with the spirit of the living God on the tablets of their hearts and then he speaks of the Spirit again in verse 6 when he says, Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And now he's saying, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And then the next statement, now the Lord is the Spirit, the one who does the writing on the hearts. And, and, and it's like Paul is operating out of his understanding of the Trinity, which we're going to confess Lord willing, at the end of this service, it's like he's operating out of his, his understanding that, yes, the, the Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God. And yet there are not, are not three gods, but one God. 
And, and he's, he's saying, the Lord is the Spirit. And yet they're distinct. They're the same and yet distinct. It, it's, it's like he's just fine to drop the mystery of the Trinity right there in the middle of the church in Corinth and let that thing blow their minds all, all, all to transformation and renewal. And, and he keeps going with it. He says, now, verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Why does he say this? I think he's saying, where the Spirit of the Lord has written the law in the heart. The Spirit makes people want to come to the glory of God. The Spirit makes people, it would make those, those heart-circumcised Israelites drawn to Moses because they're free from condemnation. If anyone is in Christ, uh, sorry, there is, there is now, now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. They're, they're free from their sin. They're free from their fears. And so they come to the glory. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then verse 18, and we all, I think he means all Christians, not just the apostles, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, one more little uh, Trinitarian aspect of this text. When he says, back up in verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, I think he clearly has Jesus in mind, but he's just referenced in verse, six, uh, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, which is, which is I think, uh, Yahweh, and, and so I, th I don't think the Father is excluded from this. It's like Paul is saying, uh, the Father and the Son are one in who they are as God. And the Spirit is one with them. And, and to turn to the Father, to Yahweh, is to turn to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord is the Spirit. And then when he speaks of being transformed into the same image, I would just draw your attention again to chapter 4, verse 4, where he speaks of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And, and so... We're, we're transformed into the image of Christ. And, and this passage, it, this is this remarkable uh, passage that follows on in verse 7 and following with these words about the jars of clay. So verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may, be, may also be manifested in our bodies. This is what I think he's saying. I'm going around proclaiming the gospel, and, and what I'm, the reason I'm doing this is so that other people can be brought into the knowledge of God. And it's like he's saying, I'm being conformed to the image of Christ as I suffer so that other people can know God. And, and so this Christ-likeness is being formed in Paul, and thereby the glory of God is radiating out of him through his suffering. So the solution to the problem is uh, this new covenant, God keeping the covenant that he made with Abraham, fulfillment of 
the experience of Moses on Mount Sinai that we all have as we worship the opportunity. We have the opportunity to live in covenant with God, whether in the land, whether in the wilderness, whether in exile, whether well-fed or hungry, right? Whether rich or poor, in every circumstance, Paul says, I have learned to be content. It's like he's saying, God's enough for me. Christ is enough for me because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Only God is enough for us. Now that brings us back to the setting. Our setting. It is, it is the case that the church is like a foretaste of the Garden of Eden. And it is the case that we are like a, an advanced colony of the future kingdom of Christ, which will encompass, when he comes, the cosmic temple. And his glory will fill the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. But it is also the case that even now we have to have realistic expectations. And I just, read, I just want to read to you one statement, and, and I'll be just straightforward with you. I'm responding to all these people that I see online talking like Christians are going to take over. And, and I just want to urge you to look at those statements and compare those statements to the statements in the New Testament. And I think what you'll find is in the New Testament, you get Paul and the apostles saying things like, well, you've already become kings and you reign without us. We're the dregs of the world. You, you hear what I'm saying? Paul is not saying, hey, we're about to take over the Roman Empire. He's not talking that way. He's saying, we're going to suffer. And the suffering is going to keep right on going until Christ returns or until we die. So, so 2 Thessalonians, um, I'm sorry, I, I want 1 Thessalonians. At the end of the first chapter... No, it is 2 Thessalonians. Sorry. Maybe I'm... Where's... It, sorry, 1 Thessalonians. I, I should have looked at my notes and not gone with my memory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and what I want are verses 9 and 10. Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom. I'm reading Colossians. This was, sorry, those are great words. But what I want to be reading is 1 Thessalonians. Sorry. This is what I'm, I mean, I think Colossians is making the same point. But what I wanted was 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. What a flub. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Listen to verses 9 and 10. This is, I'm, I'm like, where are those words I was looking for as I read that passage? 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us 
from the wrath to come, to wait for his son from heaven. He's coming back. And the kingdom, brothers and sisters, is not coming until he comes back. So I would just urge you to, to let the New Testament inform your expectation. Have realistic expectations. And I think that this doesn't mean you shouldn't try. You should try. You should try to influence your neighbor for good. You should, hey, I hope there are people in this room that run for political office. I think it'd be great for the mayor of Kenwood Baptist, or the, uh, a member of Kenwood Baptist Church to be the mayor of the city of Louisville. That would be awesome. It'd be great to have the, the city council populated with members of this church. It'd be great to have, uh, you know, all these officials in, at all these levels. Sure, that'd be wonderful. And it, it'd be awesome to see classical Christian schools thrive and, and flourish as a result of things that happen at this church. But we should never think we're going to take over. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because we're guaranteed that we're going to suffer and then Christ is going to come and he's going to bring the kingdom. So let's be realistic and let's, let's let the New Testament tell us we're going to suffer and then let's prepare to suffer and then let's do all we can, you know, to love our neighbors and to seek the welfare of the city. That's all great. But we've got to be realistic about the setting that we're in. We've got to have realistic expectations. And in the midst of all that, May the Lord fill us with all spiritual wisdom and understanding and make it so that we experience the foretaste of the kingdom that we have here in the church. Let's pray together. Father, your word is so good that even when we read the wrong part of it, it's glorious. And we praise you for this, Lord, and we also praise you for, for the way that you blessed Moses with the opportunity to worship you with, with the radiant face that resulted from the experience of your glory. And Lord, we pray that you would cause his experience to be ours. We pray that you would make it so that we, with unveiled faces, behold your glory and are transformed into the same image. And we pray that you'd bring this about through, through our communion with you here, and through our personal communion with you. Renew us, Lord. Renew us day by day so that we can experience that resurrection power that makes it so that though we're beaten down, we're not crushed. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.